You're listening to Wholesaling Inc., episode number 1201. So whenever residential realtors list commercial properties, they often use comps, which doesn't work, right? Commercial properties, we use NOI and cap rates. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that. They've never been taught that. So commercial buildings, when priced by residential realtors, are often mispriced. You can get great deals by looking at residential MLS for commercial deals. Mm This is game-changing information guaranteed to raise your real estate wholesaling business with actionable steps you can take immediately to navigate the ins and outs of wholesaling and start making money today. Join us as we put our guests in the hot seat and dive deep to dissect their strategies for success to enable you to duplicate their results. You're listening to Wholesaling Inc., the only show dedicated to making you a fortune in wholesaling. This is Todd Toback, and boy, do we have a special episode today. Today, we have Ash Patel, another guy who started out in the corporate world and uh, obviously thought that there was more, had multiple side hustles, and now owns a multi-seven-figure portfolio, but not in, in any particular niche in real estate, something in the commercial real estate space outside of apartment buildings. You know, a lot of single family guys and gals say, you know what, I want to do apartment buildings. And our guest today said, hey, you know what? I want to I want to get into something different, something not as competitive and something that's going to make me a lot of money. And so we've got a special guest today. Welcome, Ash Patel. How's it going? Todd, very well. How are you? Good. Now, Ash, Thanks before I mention, me you're actually uh, the host of another big podcast, right? The Best Real Estate Investing Show. Yes. The Best Ever Commercial Real Estate. Yes. Yeah. So uh, by the way, if you guys want to go and check out Ash on his own podcast, that is awesome. But uh, today it's all about what Ash has to teach you guys. So tell us a little bit about your background in 60 seconds or less and what pushed you into this niche of commercial real estate. Yeah, Todd. So born and raised in Jersey, went to school in Indiana, got a job in Cincinnati. I did the corporate thing for 15 years, always had side hustles. Some made it, some didn't. But as the years went on, I started making more and more money in the corporate gig and it became harder and harder to leave. So it wasn't until 2009, I left, I found commercial real estate. First property was a mixed use building. I was able to see how residential tenants destroy my property and how commercial tenants improve it. I had a store owner that replaced all the HVAC in his shop, $30,000 bill on his dime, remodeled his own bathrooms, redid the flooring, lighting, and it blew me away that you have one class of tenants that adds wear and tear, high turnover, and then you have another class of tenants that actually improves your space and they're professional business owners. So at that point, dropped everything I was doing and went full-time into becoming a commercial real estate investor. I've gone on to buy office, retail, warehouse, industrial, flex, restaurants, medical, ground-up development, basically anything that doesn't have residential tenants. I don't do self-storage don't do multifamily, and I don't do RV parks, although I've passively invested in those asset classes. So, I mean, that, that first of all, that's awesome. Congratulations, right? Everyone's like, oh my gosh, you know, I want to hear more. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty good, pretty good opening there. So Ash, let me ask you this. Obviously, it's 2009. You know, we're going through a real estate crash. You have your corporate gig. You're starting to make more and more money. I think a lot of people listening, you know, there's some people who are like, hey, I'm barely making enough to survive. And there's other people who's kind of trapped in a, you know, maybe a job that they don't like. I think we're pretty similar. I was actually selling Viagra. I'm not sure if you remember that. But there's a point where someone says, hey, you know what? I'm going to take this jump. I'm going to take this leap. 
right? What was your turning point when you're like, hey, I'm going to invest in this, you know, this multi-use space, right? I mean, that's scary to a lot of people, right? What was the, the turning point? Yeah, there wasn't a turning point. It was really a dumb mistake that got me into it. We were looking for tax write-offs. My wife and I were both W-2 earners for a lot of years, and our accountant would never give us any options. He just said, if you make it, you got to pay it. Always heard real estate had some good taxable write-offs and dove into real estate, but didn't really understand how depreciation worked, how cost segs worked. So just figured it out. But really, before I fell in love with the tax implications, I fell in love with the fact that you could passively make money while you're sleeping. And again, you deal with tenants that improve your property. Right. So that first one, I mean, how'd you find it? MLS, residential MLS. Residential MLS. Yeah. It's a great way to find commercial deals. Now that's interesting because a lot of people out there say, okay, you should take a look on CrexCN and LoopNet to find commercial deals. And I've heard some people say that that's where uh, real estate deals go to die. <laughs> but, but for yeah. some reason, and I think I know where you're going with this, but I'll let you say this. Why would you find commercial real estate deals on the multiple listing service, Ash? Todd, if you approached a residential realtor and said, hey, I've got this office building or this strip mall, can you list it? What's their answer going to be most of the time? Yeah, I'd love to do it. Even though they may not have experience in doing it, they want to get their feet wet. They want a commercial deal under their belt. So they often list properties. And usually the way it happens is, you know, hey, realtor, you're selling my house. By the way, I got this commercial building. Can you list that for me too? Sure. So whenever residential realtors list commercial properties, they often use comps, which doesn't work, right? Commercial properties, we use NOI and cap rates. Mm -hmm. They don't understand that. They've never been taught that. So commercial buildings, when priced by residential realtors, are often mispriced. You can get great deals by looking at residential MLS for commercial deals. Mm -hmm. Can you explain really quick what NOI is and cap rate? Yes, net operating income. It is basically your net income before debt service and divided by the purchase price. That equals the cap rate. Okay. And then the NOI is basically how much money the property is making, right? If you look at it as a business, basically the net profit. Yeah. Simple way to look at it is if you paid all cash for the property, mm -hmm. your cap rate is the percentage of the purchase price that goes into your pocket at the end of the year. So tell us a little bit about why, you know, somebody would say, okay, you know, these other properties, because a lot of residential guys, right? They're going to say, okay, well, obviously comps, this is what I'm used to, right? Why do commercial investors look at NOI? Why does that determine the value? Can you talk a little bit more about that for just a lot of people who may be thinking, hey, you know, I don't know anything about commercial real estate. Yes. So the reason comps don't make sense, you can have two identical buildings right next to each other. One could be a mom and pop grocery store and one could be a dollar general. There will be a million dollar price difference between the two because you're buying an income stream from a credit tenant. So the mom and pop business can go out of business at any time, right? They have a, a year lease, a five-year lease, whatever it may be. They may have a personal guarantee, but there's not much behind that guarantee often. And if your mom and pop tenant goes out of business, are you really going to sue them? No, right? If Dollar General decides they're going to close that store, they're still tied to a 10-year lease and they still have to pay. They don't have a way out of it. So you're buying a guaranteed income stream for the life of that lease. 
So basically, someone's looking at, yeah, they're basically looking at buying an income stream and basically looking to return on their capital. Correct. And, you know, it's almost like having Derek Jeter in your apartment complex, right? That might increase the value. People may want to live there. While our Derek Jeters are Dollar Generals and Chipotle's and Starbucks. Right. <laughs> so here's a question, and hopefully I'm not going, you know, too far off topic. So obviously you did this one deal, this guy put uh, you know, an HVAC in your property and you're like, oh my gosh, I never want to deal with a residential tenant again. <laughs> so now where are you? I mean, what is the niche that you really like to invest in after you've done that first deal? There's no niche. We'll do anything that makes a lot of money. We typically don't touch deals that are under 20% cash on cash at inception. If they're below that, let's say 14, 15%, there has to be a viable path to a big value add. Mm -hmm. We see deals all day long, 14, 15% cash on cash. If there's no upside, we'll pass on them. So retail right now is hot. Industrial flex space is hot. You know, people think there's a retail apocalypse going on, the Amazon effect, recessions on the horizon, inflation. But CBRE just released last week that retail vacancy is the lowest it's ever been since they started recording that metric in 2005. Hmm. So retail is very healthy, especially when you look at neighborhood centers. So Todd, you know, for a lot of your listeners, if they're used to residential, if they're used to multifamily, look at those neighborhood strip centers that serve that community, right? The optometrist, the insurance place, the pizza place, the deli, they're all internet resistant and recession resistant businesses. And they're huge returns on the money. Sure. So like, I'm thinking of like a retail center that's up the block for me, right? They've got a smart and final. Do they have a smart and final by you guys? They don't. Okay. You know, there's like, well, it's like a, it's like a big uh, grocery chain out here in San Diego, like a kind of like a mini Costco, got right? It. And then they also have a great clips and... You know, they've got an optometrist and a jewelry store. So they've got some bigger tenants. And then, you know, they got a large uh, health club, you know, in there. And then they've got some smaller tenants in there. Can you talk a little bit about, because, you know, you talked about the Derek Jeters, you know, and those big time tenants, right? Is there a mix of the big time tenants and the small time tenants? And, you know, how do you look at at who you're going to put in your retail centers? So that's a great question. When you're buying the retail center, if you buy it with all rock stars, you can only go down from there, right? There's not much value you're going to add. Imagine buying that Whole Foods strip mall with all national tenants in there. That's great. You're going to pay a very low cap rate, a very high price, and hopefully you have some stability. But if one of those tenants goes out, then two or three go out, you now have very expensive dirt. And momentum is a real thing in this industry where as you start having more vacancy, your existing tenants are more reluctant to renew, thinking that there's going to be continued vacancy. When you have mom and pop tenants, there's nowhere to go but up. You could potentially replace them when they leave with a national tenant. So a good example is the local barbershop. If they go out and you can replace that with a great clips, they can literally pay the same rent, but you've probably increased the value of that center just because of the national tenant signing the lease by probably half a million dollars or more is your increase by signing a national tenant. So the ideal strips to buy, again, if they're mom and pop in a nice suburban area, perfect. You don't have to go out of your way to get national tenants, but our best deals have been a combination of national tenants, mom and pops, and some vacancy. 
So there's a lot of upside there, right? Fill the vacancies, potentially increase the rents on mom and pops or get national tenants in there if they don't renew and just add a ton of value. Mm -hmm. How do you get the national tenants versus the mom and pops? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. Everybody thinks there's a magical formula. There really isn't. It's networking, pounding the pavement. I'll give you an example. I had a 31,000 square foot building that had a month to month tenant that really was okay leaving if I could replace them. And I looked for 30,000 square foot tenants. It's a small niche. There's a store called Bargain Hunt that's big in the Southeast and they're heading up to the Midwest. I found this person on LinkedIn that's responsible. It's their VP of real estate. Hit them up a million times on LinkedIn, tried to get their phone number, couldn't. Finally got him as a friend on Facebook and was able to interact with them there. And they told us, we're not interested in Ohio anymore. We're going to these other states, but it's all pounding the pavement and using your network, right? If you have some brokers that you know have connections to Starbucks or Chipotle, uh, you can use them, pay their commission. You can always approach the national tenants. They'll tell you who their real estate advisors, brokers, or reps are in different areas. But again, penetrating those people is difficult because everybody is after them, right? Anyone that owns raw land or vacant commercial space is going to approach Starbucks, Walgreens, all of those people and try to get them. So, you know, it's kind of like if you want a job interview, you got to find that HR person and get in front of them somehow. Mm -hmm. So it's literally pounding the pavement, exhausting your network and using every resource you have. Right. Let's go back to what something that you said is 20% cash on cash. All right. Because again, you know, there's some people who are very familiar with, with commercial real estate and there's others who are like, Hey, you know, what is that? So I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ash, when you mean 20% cash on cash, you mean that to purchase the property, there's going to be some kind of down payment. Then there's going to be some kind of financing that comes in, right? And then you're going to be talking about the cash flow that comes in, right? Based on the down payment that you put down. And then also possibly, well, did the down payment, not including the, your profit when you sell. Is that correct? Correct. We never take into account appreciation. Profit when we sell is never in our pro forma. Mm -hmm. You so know, one thing I really example, like about this, Ash, is I hate speculation, right? I hate going into a market and you're like, hey, I hope properties go up because that's like gambling. Now, obviously, you want to buy well-located properties and good metros and, you know, where you see population coming in. I think that's always a good idea. But the one thing that I really like that I talk about a lot on this podcast is that this is a business, right? And that you can force the value of the business to go up the better you run it, right? So, you know, you going out and finding, let's say, a national tenant, keeping vacancies to, you know, low, increasing the momentum in a positive direction is a way of you looking at this as, as I'm operating a business uh, and increasing the value of that business because of the way that I'm behaving, right? Which I, I just love. Correct. And to illustrate your example, let's say you buy a $500,000 building. You put $100,000 down your 20% cash on cash return is basically $20,000 profit after you pay all of your expenses and after you pay your mortgage on the building. Mm -hmm. So someone listening to this, they're like, okay, how can I do my first deal? Like I don't have, you know, $200,000 just laying around cash, right? So 
you know, I know that you work with private investors, but if someone's just starting out, what would you say? Okay, what's, you know, step one, step two, step three, step four, step five? Yeah, learn how to find deals and learn how to identify what a good deal is. There was a kid that I mentored. He just turned 30. When he was 28, he found a $5 million strip mall for us. And literally for finding the deal, he'll make $200,000. He just found another office building that we're closing on Friday. It's $2.3 million. And on that one, he wants 20% of the GP for literally finding the deal. And we're happy to give it because the numbers work. So he'll make $250,000 on that. This kid, you know, he's just turned 30 and he's a kid because I'm 47, but he just turned 30 and half a million dollars in equity. Now, granted, he hasn't gotten a check yet. That comes in the back end when we sell the properties, but it's easily half a million dollars or almost half a million dollars, right? We're finding two deals. Mm -hmm. So So if you can be a deal finder, it's a great way to penetrate this industry. Mm -hmm. So you used a word that not a lot of people might know is called GP, right? Yes. Can you explain what that is? So in residential real estate, let's say you buy a property and you wholesale it, right? And sometimes you'll get an assignment fee. Tell us a little bit about the difference, let's say, about wholesaling a deal, right? And obviously I know people will hold and keep a, a residential house. But what is the difference between wholesaling a deal and let's say getting you know $50,000 up front versus making 200,000 as a, a GP? And what does GP stand for? Okay, uh, another good question. So there's typically two classes of shareholders in a real estate deal where you take on investors. So the investors are called LPs or limited partners. And it's mostly because they have limited liability and they have limited say in the management of the building. The general partners are typically the ones that sign on the loan that find and operate the deal, and they get paid at a different rate than the LPs. So in terms of wholesaling or getting paid on the front end or back end, on both of these deals, I offer this individual money up front, or do you want to be in the deal and make more money on the back end? So for the $5 million strip mall, he could have gotten $50,000 up front when we closed, or he'll make $200,000 on the back end in let's say three, three and a half years when we close, right? So as anybody that has the deal, you typically have that option. You can just sell the deal off or often they'll include you as a percentage equity partner in the deal. And I'm telling you, having the deal is everything because successful investors, their bottleneck is often not capital because they can raise that. Most of our bottlenecks are lack of deals finding good deals. So for somebody in their 20s or somebody, you know, even in their 40s that may not have a lot of capital or knowledge, be an expert in finding deals. It's free, right? right? I mean, get out there and learn how to find great deals, regardless of the asset class. It can be a single family house. It can be a duplex, a 30 unit apartment building. There's always going to be somebody that wants that deal. You can sell it or partner with them. Right. You know, what I love about this is you can go find a deal, right? It doesn't take cash or credit. And if you were like, if you're worrying about like proof of funds or something like that, you could find someone who you might want to partner with, right? And maybe they'll proof up for you, right? Give you a proof of funds in advance of doing that. And that's what I I love about that. Now, the cool part about that is if you can control the deal, you know, you're not committed to partnering with any said individuals, but once you have control of that, you can make that decision, which I think is, is pretty awesome, right? If you get it under contract. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And again, 30 year old making a ton of money by finding deals, right? right. You know, you do five of those. That's like a million dollars a year. <laughs> yeah. And he has no liability, right? I signed on the loan. I put up the down payment. So he has no risk, only reward. Right. So now uh, here's an interesting question. So when you go in with your down payment, right, does, does your down payment money go on the LP side or the GP side? I know that's an advanced question. Yeah, no, that's a good question because a lot of people will raise all of the money they need. I typically like having a 50% LP share. So I put up 50% of the money and then I raise the other 50%. Got it. So, you know, I want in on my own deals. Yeah. I believe in them. But I know at some point I'll run out of money. So I take on investors now so that when I when that day comes that I run out of money, I've already got a number of happy investors that are confident in investing in future deals. Right. That is so awesome. The more pieces that you bring in to this pie, right, the more value that you can bring, right? So obviously you've got the person bringing the deal, you got the person raising the money, you got the person managing the date of the operation. So it truly is you know, putting a puzzle piece together, the more skills and contacts you have, the bigger piece that you can get. But I just love that, Ash. You know, no matter where you're at, right, you find a way to bring value. And obviously bringing deals is obviously the easiest way to get in. Yeah, I want to add, you know, for your listeners, what we do is no different than what private equity people do. All we do is we find a deal and we marry it to money and we get a rip on the whole transaction, right? right. Private equity companies do the same thing. Anybody can learn how to find the deal if they put the time in. Now, if you can't marry that with money, it's because your network isn't big enough, right? So build your network. And once you have the network, you have the deal, you have the network, then you need the execution, partner with somebody that can execute or learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple formula to make money. So Ash, what is the best way to build your network? You know, you have a lot of guys in there, right? In their, in their 20s. And they're surrounded by people, let's say, who are making, and this is not a bad thing, but just it is what it is, right? Who are making $40,000, $50,000 a year who are talking about you know, playing video games and getting drunk on the weekends, right? <laughs> and someone wants to make a change. Where do they start? Great question. First, realize the value of your network, then figure out how to build it. Uh, LinkedIn specific Facebook groups, local meetups, but more than anything, continue to put yourself out there. Offer to mentor people if there's an area that you're an expert in, but constantly put yourself out there. I have a student in my mastermind that for one year, he made one post on Facebook, one a day for a whole year. And all these other people that have never met him are like, oh, I know that guy. Well, how do I know him? Like, yeah, I know him. Uh, he's a friend of mine on social media. This guy is like front and center on everybody's radar from one post per day for a whole year. And the post wasn't even business related. It could be something about him, motivational. Uh, rarely was it real estate related, but be relevant, right? Put yourself out there and people will gravitate towards you. That's awesome. So Ash, how could people get a hold of you if they wanted to partner or do a deal or send you a deal or, or learn more about you? I know that you do have a mastermind and uh, Ash didn't even ask me to bring that up, but how do they, if they want to know more about you, where to get a hold of you? So my email address is ash, A-S-H, at investbeyondmultifamily.com. You can go to our website, investbeyondmultifamily.com. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, BiggerPockets, 
I personally respond to everybody that sends me a message. Very easy to get a hold of and very accessible. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ash. Now, you know I was calling you Ash just because I'm from New York. Listen, man, I'm from Jersey. (laughs) You're okay. Also, listen, this was was a fun conversation. Thank you. Thanks for what you do for your audience. Yeah, appreciate it. By the way, if if you want to hook up with me in that Facebook group, go to wholesalinginkgroup.com. Hit me up at Todd Toback, and I will talk to you on the next episode. That's all for this episode. Your next step to success is to continue the conversation over at wholesalinginc.com by joining the mailing list as well as get your chance to book a strategy session to learn the systems and become part of the tribe and work personally with one of our amazing coaches. We'll see you next episode with more ways to make you a fortune in wholesaling.